Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Previously, we saw the symbolic use of a woman to describe both the political and religious system associated with the Antichrist as well as the city from which he ruled. As this city is called Mystery Babylon, with the emphasis being on the mystery, our efforts to unravel the prophecy at this point may be wasted. Eventually, however, all will become clear as God makes it so. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 18. After John witnesses the spread of the Antichrist's treacherous influence over the kings of the earth, he declares, After this I saw an angel come down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So the angelic messenger illuminates the darkness of earth with God's light and announces the doom of the Antichrist city and his empire. Quoting prophetic scriptures from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zephaniah, the angel reveals Babylon the Great to be what she truly is, the home of demons and all that is unholy. Verse 3 remembers how her evil spread. All the nations committed spiritual adultery with her. The kings of the earth, the leaders of the earth dwellers, had willingly turned from Christ to join with her. And the merchants of the earth happily grew rich from her excessive luxuries. It appears that God himself then speaks a warning in verse 4. John says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she is given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. The voice tells those who belong to God to come out of her, for God's righteous judgment is coming. Personally, I think that even now the embryo of this false world system exists, and God is always calling upon his people to cut their connection with sin and to stand firm for him. As we're told in Romans 12 verse 2, we're not to conform to the world, but rather we're to be transformed. We're to be different to it because our minds have been renewed by God's word. And though we may be in the world, we're certainly not of it. We live differently to those around us because our citizenship is in heaven. 
The only thing of this worldly system that reaches to heaven is her sins, because according to verse 5, they are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. The woman associated with the beast is repaid double for what she has done. The same measure of the glory and luxury she gave herself will be used to measure out her torment and sorrow. Like her master Satan, her ultimate sin is pride. She thinks of herself as being more than she is. She does not fear the living God, and she believes that she sits enthroned like queen over all. And she doesn't think that she'll ever be widowed or that she'll see sorrow at God's hand. But what she thinks is irrelevant in the end, because God himself will judge her most powerfully, and in an instant his judgment will overtake her. When she falls, three cries of woe will go up. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The kings of the earth are the first to weep for her. They've not only committed adultery with her, they've also joined in her lavish living. But notice, they keep their distance. None will come to her aid. God's judgment has fallen swiftly on her, and that's really the meaning behind that phrase, in one hour. For all of her might, she couldn't protect herself, and all those who had joined in her sin against God are terrified by her torment. The second group to lament her passing are the merchants of the earth. Verse 11 reveals the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and bodies and souls of men. They weep and mourn over her, but not for her. What truly bothers them is the loss of their income and the complete collapse of their livelihood. Without her influence and her markets, who will buy their cargoes? And what a long list of the things that she traded in and consumed. Even the bodies and souls of men are listed as just another commodity, another thing, to possess and discard at will. All of the insanity of the excessive extravagance once associated with that place will be gone. They will say the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendors have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They'll weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin.'"
Like the kings of the earth, these merchants can only stand at a distance, weeping and wailing for themselves. They are astonished at how quickly her riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. Verse 17 continues, Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the earth became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Like the merchants, those who earn their living from the sea lament from a distance, throwing dust on their heads as a symbol of intense grief and loss. Woe, woe, they cry out, and while they anguish over the loss of their wealth, as did the merchants, they also appear to grieve the loss of the city itself and the whole corrupt system associated with her. Was there ever a city like this great city, they cry out, as they join in mourning the suddenness of her ruin. The earth dwellers are in torment, but not so for those who belong to God, for they rejoice over her judgment, for finally God has avenged their blood. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints, God's holy people, and of all who have been killed on the earth. The large millstone God's messenger throws into the sea really symbolizes God's divine and utter judgment. The great city of Babylon has truly fallen, never to rise again. No culture, no skills, no work, no home life will ever be found in her. Just the silent emptiness that remains when all remnants of the Antichrist system have collapsed, never to be revived. Revelation 18.24 helps us to understand why God has judged her so harshly. You see, she was responsible for the blood of God's holy people and many others being poured out on the earth. The enemies of God will be held to account. Their systems will fall and they will be judged. Chapter 18 ends with woes pronounced across the earth at the destruction of the Antichrist city. And in Revelation 19, hallelujahs ring out in heaven, praising God for what he's done. And John writes, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up for ever and ever. After the great city Babylon falls, there's an explosion of praise in the heavens. No doubt the great multitude that John sees is the redeemed of all the ages. They're shouting out hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Interestingly, hallelujah is known as a universal word. Like the word amen, it is the same in every language. Here in heaven, we see God's people united in declaring God's praise for the salvation that only he can provide for his glory and his power. They praise him because his judgments are not only correct, they're just. And he has not only condemned the great prostitute for corrupting the earth with her sin, but also to avenge the blood of his servants that she spilt and drank. And they exclaim that her judgment will be eternal, declaring that the smoke from her goes up for ever and ever. Then another group begins to shout out in praise to the Lord. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. A cry then goes out for all God's servants to praise him. And though verse 5 speaks of those who fear him, I must just point out that this kind of fear does not mean terror. It means that those who serve God have a great reverence, love and respect for him, regardless of our station in life. Then John writes of the last hallelujah in verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. If the praise was loud before, it's even louder now that God has begun to reign on earth as he does in heaven and the wedding of the Lamb has come. Is there anything more joyous, more anticipated, more beautiful than a wedding? I appreciate that some men prefer to think of their relationship with Jesus in military terms like a commander and his loyal troops and that's certainly an image of the church that we see in the New Testament. But scripture also uses this more personal and tender relationship between a bridegroom and his bride as a picture of Christ and his church. It's a wonderful analogy for our relationship with him. And so I want us to take a brief look at some of the customs from biblical times so that we catch the full picture of this heavenly celebration. In Jewish tradition, a marriage was the conclusion of a legal process started months, if not years, earlier. 
At that time, when a man desired to marry a woman, the way was often prepared for the bridegroom by a close friend or relative who would initially travel to the bride's house to begin the formal proceedings. That helps us to understand John the Baptist's response when he was asked if it was all right that Jesus begin to baptize people as well. John 3 verse 28 to 30 tells us, To this John replied, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. John had an initial part to play as the bridegroom's representative, for he prepared the way for the bridegroom. In the culture of that day, the bride was seen as having great value to the bridegroom, and so he had to pay a price to secure her for himself. Interestingly, that practice of a bride price is still prevalent in many parts of the world today. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, when Peter speaks to believers as being the bride of Christ, he tells us, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. How wonderful it is to know that we're so valuable to Christ that he paid the highest price of all. Holding nothing back, King Jesus gave his own blood as the purchase price for his bride. According to Jewish culture, once the groom had arrived and the bride price had been paid, there'd be a formal covenant ceremony which often included the signing of a document. The groom would promise to love and protect his bride and he would give her a gift as the substance or down payment of his promise. The woman, giving her consent to marry him, would then join him in drinking from a shared cup of wine. This would be the beginning of their engagement. In those days, the engagement, even at this early stage, was as binding as marriage. For though the marriage feast was still to come, it was already a covenant agreement. And we see this custom illustrated in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. We're told this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now notice, Mary was pledged to be married and yet Joseph was already referred to as her husband. And to break the engagement at this point would have required an actual divorce. Our binding covenant with Christ our bridegroom has also been signed, and the ink used was his own blood shed at the cross to make us his own. Christ also fulfilled the bridegroom's obligation to give his beloved a gift confirming the marriage covenant. 
According to Paul in Ephesians 1, 13-14, the Holy Spirit is the gift that Christ has given to us as the substance of his promise. For Paul reveals that when we believe in Jesus, we are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. At the conclusion of that initial part of the marriage process, the groom would leave the bride's home, returning to his father's house where he'd spend time preparing a place for himself and his bride to live together with the rest of the family. Is this not what Jesus promised in John chapter 14 verses 2 to 3? He said, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. The groom's father would actually oversee the new construction that would house the growing family, and it would be at the father's say-so alone that the preparations were declared to be complete. When the father saw that everything was ready, he would be the one to announce to his son that the time had come for him to return for his beloved. Now we're able to understand the full picture of what Jesus said in Matthew twenty four thirty six, where speaking of his second coming and when he would return, Jesus said, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. While the bridegroom was away preparing a place for his bride, the bride would joyfully prepare herself for life with her bridegroom. And just at the proper time, the bridegroom and his companions would leave his home in a procession to his bride's house. These processions would often take place at night, and as the company approached the bride's home, a trumpet would be sounded. A great shout would go up, declaring that the bridegroom had come. Of course, the bride had to be listening for him, and she also had to be ready when he called. Accompanied by her own companions, the bride would then come out to meet her groom, and they'd return together to his father's house for the wedding supper, after which the marriage would finally be consummated and life together would really begin. Revelation 19.6 places us at the joyous last part of the wedding, the feast, and John describes one of the most important parts of any wedding, the bride's dress. He says, The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. What a contrast between the church, the pure bride of Christ, and the beast's woman who was dressed in purple and scarlet and drunk with the wine of adultery. John speaks of the bride's gown as being made of fine linen, bright and clean. And there is some symbolism in this. Linen garments were what the priests wore when they worshipped in the temple, and those garments had to be absolutely spotless so that no impurity would be in God's presence. 
The bride's fine linen speaks first of all of this purity, but there's another thing we need to notice in verse 8. The fine linen is said to represent the righteous acts of God's holy people, the things the bride has done in her groom's absence to maintain her purity and make herself ready to be in the presence of her beloved. As the bride of Christ, we are all called to be a holy people, to be unstained by the world and to be marked by loving obedience to our bridegroom so that when we see him, we can rejoice and not be ashamed before him. What a joy that we have to look forward to. Then in chapter 19, verse 9, the angel pronounces a blessing from God on those who are invited to the celebration. And this is the fourth blessing that we encounter in the book of Revelation. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. This verse could so easily be overlooked, but there's really something we can't miss. After the bride and groom, who is more important at the wedding than the guests? We all want to know who gets invited to the feast. Some scholars point out that the bride herself never needs an invitation to her own wedding. So John can't be referring to the church here. If these invited guests are not part of the bride, the New Testament believers who belong to Christ, and yet these guests are also at the table, who are they? Well, there are two possibilities that are often mentioned, and they're not mutually exclusive. Many believe that these guests are the Old Testament saints who trusted God before Christ came to earth. People like Abraham, who scripture says believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham attain righteousness? Well, in Genesis 22, when God asked Abraham to give his son Isaac as a sacrifice, even though he'd promised Abraham that it would be through Isaac that his descendants would come, Abraham was willing to obey, believing that God would either provide a substitute to be offered up in Isaac's place or that he would bring Isaac back to life. And we know that Abraham's faith was not disappointed, for God did provide a ram that day to be offered instead of his son. Jesus is our substitute, and in truth, he is the one that was pictured by the ram that day. There are many other Old Testament saints who looked in faith to God's provision of life and salvation through his son. Hebrews 11 lists many of them. And so some scholars think that this particular wedding invitation and blessing is directed towards them. But there's also another group that it may include. If indeed the church, the bride of Christ, was taken to heaven before the tribulation, this special invitation would also be for those who are called the tribulation saints, those who came to Christ during the tribulation. Whatever the case, it's clear that all who trust in God from every nation, from every age, are there, gathered together with him in heaven, celebrating the fact that they are now fully joined together in the presence of the Lord.
Remember that an angel has been communicating all of this to John, and in verse 10, we learn John's reaction. As he says, At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The angel declares Jesus is the center point of all scripture and that all prophecy points to him and is about him. And I can honestly think of no better way to end our lesson than with those words of the angelic messenger, worship God. So we'll leave it there this time. I hope you'll join me next time. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.